There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm really looking forward to this one. I get to work with Zach today. Zach, tell us who we got on. So today we are going to have another episode essentially about the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Folks might remember that we were talking about this a few weeks back and today we have Aaron Edwards on. We're very fortunate to have him here. He's a Senior Lecturer in Defence and International Affairs at the Royal Military Academy of Sandhurst and he's also a published author of a number of books including UVF, Behind the Mask, and Mad Mitch's Tribal Law, Aden and the End of Empire. But his most recent book, Agents of Influence, Britain's Secret Intelligence Against the IRA, is going to be the focus of what we're talking about today. Aaron, great to have you here. How are you doing? I'm very well. It's good to be here with both of you today. I'm so excited. I'm so excited because, you know, I've grown, you've grown up with, with, with this, but I get to actually talk about it today and I get to learn something. So I'm really looking forward to this. Okay, so for people like me, before we start talking about your book and the secret life of uh, the secret agents, can you give our listeners, because we have many listeners from around the world who might not know a lot about the topic, a bit of an overview of the situation in Northern Ireland and why the troubles began? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I mean, where do you begin? Often with Irish history, people want to know your uh, your background before you start speaking about it. So, I mean, I'm from from there, from a troubled part of, of the world, uh, from Belfast. Uh, and uh, although I've been living in England since 2008, I've been working here uh, and I've been working with the, the military. So I suppose um, my my background and my, uh, my upbringing really influence how I see the conflict in Northern Ireland and where I uh, pinpoint the kind of origins to. A lot of people would see the, the present troubles as beginning in the late 1960s. Um, others, uh, because it's quite fashionable at the moment to look back to, you know, 100 years ago and partition, partition of Ireland. Uh, you could go back several hundred years. I mean, it's really entirely up to you. But again, as I've said, it depends on where you are uh, uh, looking at this, you know, what, what your vantage point is, where you're from. Um, and, uh, you know, your your narrative will, will change according to those biographical um, details. So, um, I'm quite comfortable talking about the troubles from the late 1960s onwards because that's my area of expertise. Um, but of course, I have written about the longer period in Irish history. And so really, um, I can begin and end um, this story wherever you like. Well, so let's take it all the way, way, way back um, to, I mean, do you want to take it back as far as Cromwell even? Because you could make an argument that 
it goes back to to that or, or potentially even further yeah so you can go back uh, hundreds of years you can go back to uh, Strongbow in Ireland you can go back to Cromwell uh, in the uh, you know and when the plantations prior to Cromwell um, the plantations in Ireland really saw the the sort of um, settlement um, of of that you know, particularly the Ulster, the old, the ancient province of Ulster, um, by those merchants and and those uh, people who were involved in business who came to Ireland and uh, sort of set up shop, um, and then uh, you have the court, the sort of inevitable ash uh, clash between the two um, the two tribes, as it were, uh, and um, you know it's a, it's a conflict that can be portrayed in many ways: settlers versus natives, or indeed you know planters versus uh, gales. Um, but really, uh, you know, the, the, the origins of the conflict, I think, are uh, less important than really the durability of the conflict between the people there. So there are all sorts of external kind of actors involved, you know, um, Britain and the British Empire much, much later. Um, but, you know, essentially that, that um, quarrel between the, the two different tribes has grown uh, considerably since uh, 17th century. Uh, and has had all sorts of permutations throughout recent history over the past few hundred years, and I think is uh, integral really to um, the debate today about where Ireland sits in relation to uh, the European Union and uh, Britain's exit from the European Union. So Ireland has never been far from uh, the history books or indeed from the news headlines. Uh, And uh, that idea of, of looking back through the mists of time is is interesting and intriguing to me as a historian, but I think I'm much more of a contemporary historian. I'm looking at the, okay, the longer roots, but uh, I think that, um, as I've said, the quarrel there is very much part of uh, my DNA when I go back, uh, when I can, uh, to to uh, Ireland, north and south. I spend a lot of time uh, in, on the island and I speak to people who uh you know from different perspectives and different traditions and we all have different ways of looking at, at uh, the history uh, but you know the past is very much the present particularly in in northern ireland today and um, with that in mind when you're writing are you conscious of the potential for what you're saying to generate a bit of a backlash and for people to react in, in incredibly strong terms to this because it's not like many historiographical debates where we're talking about things that are long since passed and you know i can have heated debates about napoleonic stuff and nobody's really that fussed because it, you know everything's long since passed this as you say is very current it's very present are you do you experience a backlash sometimes with what you write absolutely i'm not sure if it's me that they take issue with or what i've written i mean you can't separate the two i'm i'm quite an easy going kind of person you know I, I have friends from all around the world uh, and all different backgrounds I'm interested actually in things beyond Ireland um, I teach an international security studies course I'm fascinated by conflict uh, between people uh, wherever that wherever that arises and uh, but you know because I I speak with the Northern Irish accent and I must have a position. So it's very ideologically charged. And I think it's also political. People then uh, sort of try to tether you to um, one side of that spot or another. And that that's incredibly difficult. I think that you have to always have a, a, a very thick skin. I mean, I, I tend not to take it personally because actually it's, 
it's a rejection of one view um, over another, and people are perfectly entitled to have these these different views, uh, whatever informs them, politics, socioeconomic position in society, whatever it might be, you know, ethnicity, religion, whatever, whatever floats your boat. And so, um, but yes, absolutely. I mean, people then, they sort of, they see you as, as like um, an effigy, really, you know, that they rally around to try and burn uh, on occasion. And it's, uh, it's quite interesting because, you know, actually, uh, I don't, I try not to give people too much fuel. Um, but unfortunately, or unfortunately well, for me, I think my books attract kind of media interest. And, and so once the media gets hold of it, you know, you get that kind of tabloid sensationalism uh, and where they, they really uh, focus in on one aspect, you know, and, uh, and, and really leave out the kind of rest of the story. And what I'm trying to do really is trying to uh, put across a kind of alternative history, if you like, one that, that could be acceptable to all right-thinking men and women, you know, rather than just simply... Um, you know, one side or the other. So I think that my my own kind of historical training, you know, f- from being a student and, and then uh, beyond that, you know, I looked to the work of Ferry Cobsbaum and people like that who had, you know, written from below uh, rather than, you know, the kings and queens and the, the great men, usually very, very rarely women at the top. Uh, and so I'm very interested in how you know, ordinary people kind of see these events unfolding, these great, you know, cataclysmic uh, historical events. So that's that's why I offer something a little bit different. And it can actually be one of those uh, occasions when, you know, your work is picked up and read by lots of people or you're like Marmite all of a sudden, you, you know, people either love you or they hate you. Rather than, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I learned something new. So let's move on to your book because I... I was quite drawn into this book and um, it's, it's a really interesting topic. So what did the intelligence was set out to do and what was it, what was its purpose? So the, at the beginning of the conflict in the late 1960s, the present conflict, the, the troubles as they've become euphemistically known, um, it was very much for uh, the UK and the deployment of the British military in 1969 and, uh, a sort of peacekeeping role, uh, and then that very quickly turned overnight into uh, an offensive war against British troops and police by the uh, provisional IRA, particularly, but also the you know the official IRA. So the Ar- Irish republicanism has split throughout history, uh, and uh, and so uh, the most prominent group, the provisional IRA, were emerging fast, emerging in the early 1970s, a really determined kind of ruthless. Um, threat to not only the, uh, British troops and security forces in Northern Ireland, but also to uh, the British mainland, the UK mainland. Uh, and so uh, there was a you know there was a series of decisions taken that uh, you know the intelligence services really had to up their game and improve uh, the intelligence picture. So they had to have like a kind of understanding not only of what was happening there, the conflict between people, but also, you know, who who was involved in these groups? You know, how did they organize themselves? What were they doing? What were they planning? And the only way really of getting that information apart from, uh, you know, in- intercepting phone calls and so on, tapping phone calls, as we see in other uh, theaters of the Cold War, we, we also see the insertion uh, of uh, human intelligence sources. 
Uh, so agents inside these groups and also the turning of members of these groups to become informants. So really the intelligence war is a kind of multi-pronged attack. You know, you've got like signals intelligence, you've got image intelligence, people take photographs of people meeting other people and um, you know satellite imagery and so on, even though it was in its infancy then in the 1970s. And then of course you have the human um, eyeball, you know, getting eyes on what's happening, the discussions that are happening in, in smoke-filled rooms. One of the things you touch on, I believe, in your book is this kind of idea of sowing paranoia amongst uh, the, the paramilitary groups so that they're kind of looking over their shoulder the whole time thinking that agents were everywhere. How do they go about attempting to do that in practice? Because that's quite a difficult thing to do operationally, not least because if you have assets on the ground who are feeding you intelligence, you can't afford to compromise those assets. So how do they go about trying to do it and, and ultimately does it work yeah so the uh, strategy originates actually from the second world war uh so jc masterman had written about you know this double cross system uh, and that was used in uh in wartime uh and uh, and and you know the, the the sort of uh i guess the conclusion of that was that in order to frustrate the sort of german spy ring in england you had to then uh, feed them kind of half-truths, lies. You had to manipulate them in some way, and you also had to uh, essentially be in charge of that spy ring, even though they thought that they were running their own spy ring against the, the English and the British. Uh, they were actually being manipulated um, through various means. Uh, and so they took that kind of template, and by the 1970s, when the Northern Ireland Troubles are at their height and hundreds of people are losing their lives, they're actually trying to um, do two things. So the direct approach is to find out that information that I talked about. Um, but also they have to realise that in Northern Ireland, in Ireland, it's a very different place. And uh, from the Second World War, it's a very different place that, that Britain understands from its empire. So a lot of these techniques are used in various places in South Yemen uh, in the late 1960s and, you know, in, uh, in Cyprus in the 1950s and so on. Um, but in Ireland, they realised that the only way really you're going to get through and break down the kind of walls, the barriers that the IRA and other terrorist groups have erected is if you get right inside that movement. And because the movement is connected through family ties. Uh, so you, what you're really asking people to do is not betray some ideological cause. You're asking them to betray their friends and their family. And so uh, one way of doing that very effectively, it's still an operation, this, this network of the rumour mill in uh, Belfast. I also lived in Derry, Londonderry, for, for a year before I moved to England. And I can see it there. You, you can start a rumour very easily. And it kind of travels through. It's it's almost like a virus-like, you know, it spreads uh, and uh, it can get out of control and it becomes an echo chamber. So this is really before Twitter, before social media, you have a kind of network in place and spreading that. It can, it can be used uh, directly uh, or indirectly. So you, you essentially engineer the demise of individuals. You move them from one position to another. Uh, and unfortunately, in, in the Irish conflict, you know, can lead to them being being killed by their own comrades. So it's very murky. It's been referred to as a dirty war, but it's a very murky way of of uh, essentially keeping your opposition, your terrorist opposition, off balance. 
I'm, I'm really interested. You um, you mentioned the types of agencies that were involved or the types of departments that were involved in the intelligence war. I want to know and deep, dig a little bit deeper in this. Was it all just revolving around MI5 at this point or have you got other agencies that are being pulled in to be able to work collectively? So the principal uh, agencies involved are the military uh, and the police, the Royal Ulster Constabulary. Uh, and uh, the security service MI5. Now, there is a, 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 a sort of interagency cooperative um, <clears throat> unit set up between MI5 and MI6 called the uh, Irish Joint Section. Uh, and the Irish Joint Section is really where you have um, agent handlers and also intelligence officers of different you know, technical capabilities involved in Ireland, North and South, because this becomes... Uh, quickly an international issue uh, I mean it's damaging the UK's reputation on the world stage to a certain extent uh, and the IRA are very aware of that and in fact their propaganda is referred to quite simply as propaganda of the deed so they are very well aware of that they've got a very good receptive audience in the United States and Irish America uh, and in other places and so it becomes a battle then for legitimacy between the British government uh, and the IRA and so that would involve the Foreign Intelligence Service, Britain's Foreign Intelligence Service, MI6, to a lesser extent. Uh, but really, when we're talking about the kind of frustration of IRA operations on a day-to-day basis, that's stopping gunmen from going out and shooting soldiers or police officers or uh, blowing up civilians or whatever it might be, that, that job is handed to the local police service, uh, the Royal Ulster Constabulary. So they run most of the agents at the time. And in my interviews, when I interviewed some of their former senior officers, they said that uh, 90%, 95%, something like that, 99%, one said, of all the agents uh, inside terrorist groups are being handled by the police so um but then you do have this dimension of agents of influence which is the title of my book where um you have political agents people who are uh, essentially um uh, either inserted in or turned uh, and their role is simply to move in the context of the ira move its political wing in a direction where it wins votes and so the theory goes because it's been applied in different theaters for the uk and different parts of the world and and its empire you're um shoring up the moderates and you're sidelining the extremists so the idea the rationale is that at some point in the future the moderates will become uh, the most important dominant part of uh, that irish republican movement in fact that's what happens by the 1990s so is there an equivalent movement um, by the IRA to, you know, generate their, their own intelligence and, and also to counter what the British and, and MI5 and the police force are doing, but then also insert their own agents to spread their own disinformation where they can? Absolutely. So the, um, the provisional IRA as a, uh, as a guerrilla army, as a terrorist group, as an insurgent group, whatever way you want to characterize it, of course, they would see themselves as freedom fighters. So uh, within all freedom fighter type organizations, you have this ability to engage in counterintelligence. So the IRA's t- counterintelligence relies on individuals being very good at, well, first of all, being trustful. Uh, they, they are trustworthy, sorry. They are, they are there. They are um, long-standing Republican figures, uh, and uh, they are they are considered to be what what the IRA or former IRA members would 
would refer to as beyond reproach. Okay, so you have um, figures that loom large in the provisional IRA, like Brendan Hughes. Brendan Hughes is a senior IRA man. Uh, he spends some time in prison, of course. He's captured and he spends um, the 1980s in prison. Then he's released uh, and uh, he becomes an uh, responsible for tracking down those moles, uh, closing in on informants uh, and uh, outing agents. And um, he's frustrated in that uh, because the people who are in place uh, doing that uh, are rumoured to actually be British agents themselves. So what you see there is the IRA's counterintelligence operation actually being run by the British. So, um, and that takes a long, long time to get to that point. And uh, of course, not everybody in the IRA is uh, working for the British, uh, but um, some people are. And that kind of influence that you can have in in, uh, misdirecting the IRA is very, very important. So it is a very murky war. uh, And um, I think that the counterintelligence extends from hunting down these moles. And they are executed, by the way. Over 70 people were murdered by the IRA, accused of uh, treason uh, and uh, men and women, I should I should add. Uh, but also, uh, Brendan Hughes is involved in a very uh, sophisticated signals intelligence operation. Uh, and he's also party to human intelligence that where IRA uh, leaders have actually turned police officers and to an extent, military and former military, where they are feeding them information. So there's a, a, a you know, an alternative uh, history and narrative there of, um, uh, you know, where the parachute regiment, the fierce British army unit, fierce and British army unit, which is of course in the news at the moment, is very aggressive on the streets. But there are some members of the parachute regiment who join the provisional IRA and are feeding them information. And not only that, they're helping to construct bombs. They're helping to carry out attacks. I mean, you know, so sim- sim- their sympathies could lie uh, and did lie with with the Irish and with the Irish Republican Army. So that's why um, you you do get uh, a kind of a clash between those uh, spy masters uh, and those people within the IRA who try to, you know, um, push back. And uh, I think by the late 1980s, uh, the British are definitely in the ascendancy in terms of this fight uh, with the IRA. And by the early 1990s, um, those individuals like Brendan Hughes are not sidelined necessarily in the early 1990s. He's actually promoted. So by the sort of mid 1990s, he's very senior. So he's no longer responsible for the day to day, you know, uh, mole hunt. Uh, and then, of course, he is sidelined because he walks away from uh, Sinn Féin and the Republican movement because he doesn't uh, believe that where they've taken the IRA is the right, you know, the right, the right path. And uh, and so he, you know, he's a very central figure in all of this. And uh, I know that having interviewed senior police officers who were in the the RUC special branch, they handle the agents. They saw him as probably um, the um, the one individual who could have. Um, turned the tide on them. They saw him as a very worthy opponent uh, and they could never, ever turn someone like him. Uh, and, and that's why it was, you know, a, a constant cat or mouse game. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. 
Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. So we had a podcast uh, with Andrew Lowney a couple of, uh, couple, I think it was a couple of months ago, where we ended up talking about the Mountbatten assassination in 1979. And um, one of the intelligence officers you actually discussed in your book, he was actually brought out of retirement in the aftermath of the tragedy of Morris Oldfield. Can you talk to us a little bit about him and what role he played in the intelligence war? Morris Oldfield was the former chief of the Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, and uh, he was uh, a very senior intelligence official for many years. Uh, and he retired in 1978. He became a research fellow at All Souls in Oxford. Uh, and then in 1979, he's chosen as a security and intelligence coordinator at Stormont. The reason why he's chosen is because, well, he's not the first choice. Yeah, he, um, the, what they want, what Mrs. Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister wants in the aftermath of the assassination of Lord Mountbatten and the 18 soldiers at a place called Warren Point, very, very close to the Irish border uh, on the same day, is she wants um, better intelligence, but she also wants someone who's an ambassador type figure who can uh, improve relations between Britain and Ireland uh, because there is no cooperation to speak of really between the uh, Guardi, the, the forces and the uh, law enforcement agencies in the, in the South uh, and the British Army and police and so on in the north. So the first choice is actually a former ambassador. Um, he's not available. The second choice isn't available either. So the third choice, it, it falls to uh, the former most senior uh, British intelligence officer in the UK. And he's reluctant to take the job because he knows that Ireland is a difficult and dangerous place. Uh, and uh, even though he is um, a single man, he he has a, an older family. And he has a family a uh, sort of extended family that he lives with, like sisters, and he's worried about them. He's worried about people who are closely associated with them, that the IRA might target them. But he then um, sees it as his duty to come over to Belfast. And what he does is he essentially, uh, it was described to me as he, he held people's hands while they made changes that were necessary in order to get better intelligence on the IRA. And, uh, and he is unfortunately not in the the post very long uh, and uh, a scandal removes him from his position as security and intelligence coordinator. Having said that, he, he does lay the foundations that quickly uh, become the most effective intelligence attack against the IRA yet seen, probably since the 1950s when there was an IRA border campaign uh, and another senior MI5 officer, Bill Magan, had gone over to Belfast and had assisted the RUC and trying to, you know, stop those IRA attacks. So it is a significant period, I think, in, in the troubles. Uh, and uh, what he does is he lays a foundation. Uh, Ten years later, this plan that he originally devised and helped to formulate comes to fruition. He's replaced, incidentally, by uh, uh, another um, a senior uh, foreign office official, Rooks Richards, who's very famous for being uh, an SOE agent runner in France in the Second World War. Uh, and then he becomes an ambassador after the war uh, in various places. Brooks Richards is absolutely committed to continuing with what they call the old field system. Uh, and that's what I uh, look at, certainly in the first few chapters of, of my new book. 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So less than a year after Mountbatten's assassination, the British begin operations to arrest and then neutralize the IRA kind of in the process. I'm curious about what you wrote in your book about Operation Artichoke um, and the, the way in which it's involving, I think I've got this right, teams in, in Belfast, but also in London. Give us a sense about both the intelligence gathering process behind that, but then also how the operation as a whole plays out. So uh, Operation Artichoke is one of the first joint operations between the police army and MI5. Uh, against the IRA. It's the first major intelligence attack. It's not the only one. There are surveillance operations referred to in the history books and in my book as Operation Hawk, which is targeting like the quartermaster who's in charge of the guns and explosives in the IRA. Uh, in Belfast, uh, Brian Keenan, he's then arrested. Uh, and uh, and so there, it's really about tracking the senior leaders, finding out what they are up to. And it's a rudimentary kind of early attempt at... Uh, movements or traffic analysis where uh, you kind of you, you find out not only where they're going but who they're speaking to and you kind of put all the jigsaw pieces together uh, and that gives you a, a better intelligence picture so artichokes actually where you bring in special forces or where the british brought in special forces for the first time and they have a reputation as being somewhat um you know uh, ruthless in uh, the arrest and detention or indeed the uh, the killing of some of the um some of the terrorists um but actually they're relatively new to uh you know the urban operational theater of belfast themselves they've been operating mainly in south armagh and the countryside uh conducting you know again surveillance and um interdiction operations against the ira so in 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 that period what you have actually in belfast is you have this fairly straightforward arrest operations the arrest uh the IRA M60 gang there because that's a weapon that they use. It's a Vietnam War era kind of um, heavy machine gun and they are targeting police and military patrols. So the, the special forces are part of a wider operation to close the net on the IRA uh, and then capture them. Um, but unfortunately, the operation goes wrong. Uh, and one of the young officers, uh, Herbert Westmacott, Richard Westmacott, uh, he is he's killed uh, when they raid the house. Um, but they, the IRA M60 gang, they uh, they surrender, uh, and uh, about a year later, they they break out of prison, you know, and uh, and and so go on the run. Um, but they are captured at that time. It's seen as a success, and it's actually announced by the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland 
in the House of Commons as this great success, an, an example of the police, military and intelligence agencies working together. What What's also interesting is it, it's happening at the same time as probably one of the most famous uh, raids uh, in the UK's military history, and that is the Iranian embassy siege in London, where uh, a sister unit of that unit that's uh, at work in Belfast is um, mounting an operation against the, the um, hostage takers in, in London. So, uh, you know, it's it's there are two examples, two, two operations are running concurrently that introduce really the SAS, Special Air Service, to the world's media uh, and uh, and the rest of the world. So the, in, in my book, I, I look at the operation in detail because um, I, I was fortunate enough to interview uh, someone who was involved in the operation, Operation Artichoke, uh, and I was just very interested in that relationship that was developing between the police and the army primarily, but also with intelligence service support. I'm quite interested, like you, in the day-to-day people, the average Joe, the Bob on the street. So for me, I want to know a little bit more about the agents that were recruited within the IRA. Were there many of them? Do we know much about them and the conditions that they had to operate under? And most of all, the one thing I think everybody is dying to know is were they given free reign to commit crimes as agents? The agents uh, and the sources that I talked to were very ordinary people and uh, they belonged to that community of the, the nationalist community, the Republican community. Uh, two, two of them in particular that I interviewed um, belonged to that community. They were chosen, they were recruited because they could easily move within that community uh, without drawing any attention. So um, there are different ways that you can draw attention uh, as as a spy. Uh, one, you might talk with a different accent. So, for example, when I lived in Derry in 2007, 2008, anytime I opened my mouth, okay, people instantly knew I wasn't from the city. So that's a giveaway. So the accent can be a giveaway. The um, your community background can betray you. Uh, if you're in, you know, in, in a divided society, it can betray you very, very quickly, not just through the way that you talk, but the way that you think, the way that you act, just the way that you are, your entire demeanor. demeanor. Plus also, because it's a very small place, we're only talking about one and a half million people at, at that time. You know, 30 years ago, it's grown the population since then. But it was referred to as some British army officers as a village. And uh, and in villages, everybody knows everybody's business, right? So uh, that's why they were carefully chosen, because they could hide in plain sight. Uh, one of the very interesting aspects of, of this intelligence history that I've been looking at recently is I, I've gone back into uh, some of the classics, like Kim Philby's uh, My Silent War. He was a very... Uh, famous double agent of KGB, uh, and, uh, and then he eventually escaped. To, he was he, he went off to uh, Moscow to live out the rest of his life as a traitor. But uh, what he talks about is a cover personality, so that you know, in order to reconcile the difficult business of spying on your own people, your own kind, you have to develop an entire personality and change your personality uh, and become them. So you become what you are 
sent in to betray. So uh, one of the agents that I interviewed, Willie Carlin, uh, he, uh, his sister was in the IRA and uh, she was intimately involved in the IRA operations in the 1970s. He was recruited by MI5 in 1974. Whilst he was a serving British soldier, he was demobilized. He was, uh, he was, he was uh, then sent back to Derry to spy on the IRA uh, and spy on his own sister and spy on people that she had come into contact with. So really, you get a very ground level up uh, view of, of IRA operations. So he's feeding political intelligence at that time, which is quite important. And uh, for MI5, particularly, who had recruited him to know what was going on. But there's a famous, uh, famous saying in, in Northern Ireland, particularly, which is that the dogs in the street know. Uh, and the dogs in the street are very intelligent uh, and they pick up all sorts of chatter. And so Willie Carlin was essentially an echo chamber. Everything he picked up, he then passed back. And uh, that's how they did it. So um he was simply there as a passive vessel, collecting information as a channel of information for London. Uh, and uh, that found its way into various kind of operational uh, intelligence reports. And again, from 1981, uh, after the IRA hunger strikes, or while they were ongoing, he then um, re-engaged. He had walked away in 1980 uh, from the IRA or sorry, from from um, the, uh, reporting on the IRA and uh, Republican activities, and uh, and and he was paid off as an agent. He was retired as an agent, and then he sort of reengaged. And the reason why he reengaged is a young woman was murdered point blank range in front of him in a street, uh, and then he went to work for British military intelligence until 1985 when he was withdrawn. But he was a political agent. Um, there are, you know, another agent that I spoke to had been involved in the fringes of. IRA activity, uh, and um, you know, I uh, interviewed him on a number of occasions and found that um, he was a very different uh, person. He was also tasked with a very difficult job of actually infiltrating into IRA squads uh, and bringing back information, and he he found it very difficult actually to remain passive, uh, and so he was often bounced into operations uh, at the time um as we would say in belfast you're, you know you bounced into things press ganged would be another way of putting it and um so he found himself actually witnessing uh the um some of the you know the military activities um in terms of whether they were authorized they weren't authorized uh to engage in uh, violent activity they were simply there and i've i've interviewed the former spy masters from the police and they've said under no circumstances were they to get involved having said that it was a gray area they told me it was a gray area because you can't uh, have someone infiltrated into or turned within a paramilitary organization who isn't going to become engaged in that sort of activity simply because they would be then uh, shadow there would be shadows of doubt there would be uh, an attempt to work out whether they were indeed an agent by having them participate in some activities. Uh, and if they didn't participate, then they were seen as a traitor and they could have been executed. So this is a sort of very dangerous uh, territory that they had found themselves operating in. How much support do these agents get 
and on a sort of day-to-day basis so they just kind of cast adrift or is there some kind of mechanism for safeguarding them because i mean if they're in the field what can you honestly do to field in inverted commas but what can you honestly do to support them when we look at this i think we have to look at the past as a almost a different you know country uh, because uh, today they've all sorts of uh, gadgets and uh, technology that they can use at least a mobile phone which was not available when we're talking about the 1980s even the early 1990s I mean they, they do come in but some of these sources had to use public telephones in order to get the word out sometimes public telephones were uh, vandalized sometimes they were literally blown up uh, uh, they were firebombed, petrobombed, they were damaged in, in civil disturbances. So it's a very hostile environment, a non-permissive environment for them to carry out their day-to-day activities. Very nerve-wracking, I think, for them. And one of the, uh, the dimensions that I, I look at is a psychological dimension, the human dimension. You know, you've got people here who are literally risking their lives, could be carried out the back door of their homes and shot. I mean, I grew up in a, in a place in a very kind of tough neighborhood where I saw people shot. I actually saw people shot. I saw people fight. I saw people, you know, I, I you know, shots were fired. Um, wep- you know, heavy weaponry like AK-47s were carried around. I mean, it was almost like a, a war zone from what we would, you know, we would see in other places today. Back then, that's what we're dealing with. Context is very important. So I think that they are um, operating in that hostile environment. And um, it's it's a very tricky set of circumstances for them. So do you think, I mean, you've probably been asked this question about a million times. <clears throat> we're going to ask it anyway. So do you think that the British intelligence contributed to the stalemate that eventually led to the Good Friday Agreement? And do you think that the intelligent war was successful in what they set up to do? That's a great question. I think that the idea of a stalemate developing is a very convenient way for, for uh, you know, for us to look at it, looking back in history. Uh, and, uh, and why I say that is that the provisional IRA was brought to what intelligence officers call a culminating point in the early 1990s. By the mid-1990s, I mean 1994, when they call the ceasefire, they were in a position where they could go on no further. So I've interviewed former senior members of Sinn Féin, um, and, uh, and they've said, well, what was the IRA to do? Was the IRA to continue for 25 years? Or in their words, could we cash in the chips of the armed struggle? So they thought that they could get more of their overarching political aim, which was the, you know, British out of Ireland, uh, Ireland reunited. They could get more through politics. And uh, and so there are academics who argue very strongly that this politicisation is the best way to explain it, that um, the IRA didn't win um, necessarily, but it didn't lose either. And so some people have taken that to be a stalemate. But what you have going on at that time, actually, it's not just British intelligence and the provisional IRA. You have loyalist paramilitary groups that are they're, they're killing a heck of a lot of Republicans and, and ordinary people, Catholics primarily. So it's a sectarian war uh, that's going on there too. And that's very worrying for British intelligence because they're talking to Republicans and at the same time, these loyalist paramilitaries, these Protestant paramilitaries who are against the IRA, 
or, or killing them and literally trying to set them up for assassination. And uh, and so I've interviewed in my previous book, I interviewed Loyalist Paramilitaries who had been on uh, what they call operations where they were sent out to assassinate Martin McGuinness, who's a, uh, the chief of staff of the IRA. Well, actually, he was Northern commander in the early 1990s, the operational commander for the IRA. So if they'd assassinated him, then who knows where the peace process would have gone because he was the one that they were talking to most. And Jerry Adams, he was also uh, rumoured to have been, you know, up for um, assassination by loyalist paramilitaries. They were on the hunt for him in the 1980s, uh, long into the 1990s. So those operations had to be frustrated as well. So I think what you have is uh, rather than a fast flowing stream, a river, um, you know, where it's just the British uh, intelligence services, the British government and the IRA. You also have all these little tributaries. You have all these little kind of, um, uh, you know, streams running into that fast flowing peace process river, if you like. And, uh, and so they also have to be talked into, you know, accepting uh, some kind of peace. Uh, and in 1994, when you get uh, the mainstream paramilitary organizations on both sides calling a halt to their armed campaign. Um, it's at that time war weariness, the idea of stalemate has grown. But I think later on, when the IRA fully decommissioned and ended their war in 2005, strategically, they are boxed into a position where they accept what's known as the principle of consent. So they accept the fact that unionists have a right um, to be in Ireland uh, and uh, you know, in charge of their own destiny. So I, I think that it's, we, we must see more than simply those two players in, in the, in the game. And, um, but British intelligence, was it significant, uh, it, you know, in, in gathering that inf secret information in order to frustrate IRA operations? Absolutely. Did it play a role in uh, moving the IRA towards politics? Definitely. And, um, you know, is it responsible? The only thing responsible for ending the troubles? No, definitely not. Aaron, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, I have one last question, I guess, which is we see a lot of this still in the news for very obvious reasons. Most famously, um, well, most prominently at the moment, the the um, actions of, of SAS troops opening fire on civilians. Um, how fragile is the situation right now? Because we see a lot in the media about how the tensions are increasingly coming to the fore it, it, within the last sort of 18 months or so. Do you have a perception that this is still a very kind of volatile and fragile situation out there in Northern Ireland? Sure. So the incident you were referring to, the Ballon Murphy shootings by the Parachute Regiment, a regular army unit uh, uh, against um, people in the Ballon Murphy area of Belfast, West Belfast. I think that that's, again, an example of how the past always haunts the political present and has a tendency uh, you know, these events were 50 years ago. Uh, this is not re this is not ancient history for people. This is recent history. It might as well have happened yesterday. And so tensions are always on the boil, whether it's one community or the other, or indeed when both of them uh, enter into this kind of, um, it's been referred to as a sham fight, but where they really try to get one over on each other, because what this is, from an academic point of view, is a zero-sum conflict. It's an ethnic ethnic conflict, an ethno-national division that's uh, strong uh, and uh, permeates all aspects of Northern Ireland. It's not to say it's the future, because we know that people also have different views and different 
political identities and so on, different ambitions, just want to live a normal life. But in some of these areas where it is endemic, this quarrel, um, you do not get uh, the movement towards uh, a more fruitful, positive peace. Uh, and so unfortunately, I think the fragility of the peace process will continue and it will continue for all sorts of reasons that we probably haven't time to talk about. But I think that the what happened in the past is uh, something that is not entirely understood and is actually weaponized uh, by one side or the other. Uh, and unfortunately, as long as you are in that scenario where people aren't looking to the future to live together and to say, never again will we return to those dark days, then the conflict will continue to relapse and it will become violent at certain times. And I think we're in that eye of the storm right now. We saw in early April the beginnings of this. And uh, I think that it's by no means over, sadly. And uh, and I can report that from the front line uh, and where I will be returning in a few weeks' time to see just you know what uh, the pandemic has done in terms of moving things forward. I think certainly that the pandemic that we see um, is just another example where initially we saw people work together and then they pulled apart. So I don't think the pandemic has brought people together. In fact, um, sadly, I think that the quarrel, uh, you know, lives long um, in, in the hearts and minds of the people there, uh, regardless of whether there is a, a health crisis or a climate emergency or whatever that might be, we, we still have the, uh, the intractable conflict there. Aaron, this has been so insightful. I'm so glad you came on and talked to us about this. I've learned so much. I mean, literally, this is recent history. This is, and it's still ongoing, just like Zach said. Um, ladies and gentlemen, make sure you do head to our online bookshop as well to grab yourself a copy. I'm just going to remind you of the title, Agents of Influence, Britain's Secret Intelligence War Against the IRA. And thank you again for joining us, Aaron. Thanks. Thank you very much. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you could be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 